And when there was a need to raise money, whether it was for churches and schools or hospitals or a family of a miner killed in a mining accident, well, Nellie would head downtown for the saloons or the brothels with her hat turned upside down and she always left with a hat full of money. The source of those donations never bothered her. She said one time, whether the money comes from an upstanding citizen or a member of an outlaw faction makes no difference to me, and the money doesn't know the difference either. In 1874, Nellie joins a party of 200 Nevada miners headed for the Cassiar Mountains in northern British Columbia, near the border of the Yukon. The region is practically unknown and all but inaccessible, but the miners, including Nellie, the only female, reach their destination and strike gold on the upper reaches of the Stikine River and along its major tributary, Dease Creek. It's only fall when winter comes to the Cassiars. The miners are caught unprepared for the heavy snowfalls and severe cold. As their supplies dwindle, dozens begin falling ill with scurvy. Their beloved Nellie is not among them. She left earlier for a vacation in Victoria on Vancouver Island. When word reaches Victoria, the miners are entrapped by snow and ice and suffering terribly. Nellie purchases 2,000 pounds of supplies, including plenty of lime juice, hires six men, and heads for Dease Creek. At Wrangell, Alaska, U.S. Customs officers try to dissuade her from what they term a mad trip. But Nellie pushes on. When the commander of Fort Wrangell hears that a woman is headed into the Cassiars, he dispatches a lieutenant with a squad of soldiers to rescue her. They don't catch up with Nellie until high up on the Stikine River. Nearly exhausted and suffering greatly from the cold, the soldiers find Nellie camped comfortably on the ice of this frozen Stikine. The lieutenant says she is cooking her evening meal by the heat of a wood fire and humming a lively air. The soldiers greatly accept her offer of hot coffee and food and return without her. The winter weather is so severe that people in coastal settlements think Nellie must have died. Here again is Jane Baker. There was a small avalanche and Nellie's tent was buried 10 feet deep in the snow. Now, when I heard about this, I wondered how did she figure out how to get out of there? Well, if you spit, your spit will go down. So what she did was spit and climb the opposite directions, and she, and she climbed out of the hole. She dug herself up out of it. After 77 days on the trail and digging herself out of a snowslide, Nellie reaches Dease Creek. Upon hearing of Nellie's trek, a newspaper called it an extraordinary feat by an indomitable female who possesses all the vivacity as well as the push and energy inherent to her race. With lime juice and good food, Nellie nurses every one of the 200 snowed-in miners back to good health. She is called the Angel of the Cassiars. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Nellie Cashman here on Our American Stories. You're the angel 
This is Our American Stories, and we continue now with the story of Nellie Cashman. Nellie stays in British Columbia for another three years, operating her businesses and raising money to build St. Joseph's Hospital in Victoria. In 1878, Nellie returns to San Francisco to visit her mother in the Cunninghams. Fanny and her husband now have three boys and two girls who love their Aunt Nell and are fascinated by her many adventures. A new mining strike soon sends Nellie to Tucson in Arizona Territory. She opens the Delmonico Restaurant, the first business in Tucson owned by a woman. But in 1880, she heads for the new silver strike at Tombstone. She takes over operation of the Russ House Hotel and within weeks becomes part owner. One of the prospectors she feeds for free in grub stakes is Edward Doheny, who later becomes one of America's great oil men. Not long after Nellie begins operating the Russ uh, House Hotel, her sister's husband dies of tuberculosis. Nellie rushes to San Francisco and brings Fanny and her children to Tombstone to live in a home immediately behind the Russ House. In 1883, Fanny dies of tuberculosis, and Aunt Nell finishes the job of rearing the Cunningham children. When Nellie arrives in Tombstone, there is no Catholic church. Here again is Marshall Trimble. In 1880, there was an article in the Tombstone Epitaph that said, Nellie Cashman, the irrepressible started out yesterday to raise funds for the building of a Catholic church. We don't know what success attended her first effort, but bet there is going to be a Catholic church and tombstone before many more days if Nellie has to build it herself. She convinces the owners of the Crystal Palace Saloon, one of the owners is Wyatt Earp, to allow Sunday services to be held there until a church is built. Nellie leads the way in fundraising for what becomes the Sacred Heart Church. Nellie also helps build the first school in Tombstone and the first non-military hospital in Arizona, St. Mary's in Tucson. She also establishes a fund for prospectors injured in mining accidents and serves as treasurer of Tombstone's chapter of the Land League of Ireland. Nellie becomes one of the most influential and respected figures in Tombstone. Here again is Jane Baker. During the time she was raising those kids in Tombstone, the gunfight at the OK Corral happened, and Nellie knew all of those players, Doc Holliday, Wyatt Earp, all his brothers. She knew the mayor of Tombstone named John Clum, who thought she was absolutely wonderful and wrote uh, glowing reports of her. John Clum, the publisher of the Tombstone Epitaph and Tombstone's first mayor, said of Nellie, her frank manner, her self-reliant spirit, and her emphatic and fascinating Celtic brogue impressed me very much and indicated that she was a woman of strong character and marked individuality. Here's Marshall Trimble with another story exemplifying Nellie's servant's heart. During the Christmas season of 1883 in Bisbee, five men pulled a robbery, killing four people, 
including a pregnant woman. They were caught, tried, and convicted, and sentenced to hang. Nellie took it upon herself to be their mother confessor. And just before the hanging, an entrepreneur had built a grandstand outside the high walls of the Tombstone Courthouse and was selling tickets to watch the hanging. The outlaws pleaded with Nellie not to let their hanging become a public spectacle. So, the night before the event, Nellie and some friends arrived, late, late in the evening, with tools in hand, and they tore it down. After the five men were hanged, the authorities had planned to donate their bodies to medical science. But the condemned men protested to Nellie, so she saw to it that they were given a proper burial and hired a guard to protect their graves for several days. One day, a dying Mexican stumbles in a tombstone and collapses at the entrance to the Russ house. Nellie has him carried inside and put on a bed. Before he dies, he mutters to her, Mule, go to Mule. Gold nuggets are found in his pockets. Nellie and some 20 tombstone miners are soon exploring the desert inland from Mule in Baja, California. The party runs out of water, and several of the men are on the verge of death from dehydration. The Phoenix Herald newspaper reports that Nellie and two others have died of thirst. Actually, Nellie is in better shape than any of the men. She volunteers to go off on her own, assuring her fellow prospectors a good angel will guide her to water. She crosses miles of scorching desert and miraculously comes upon an isolated mission. Not pausing to rest, she organizes a rescue party and helps drive burrows loaded with goatskin sacks of water back to the miners. She arrives just in the nick of time. In 1895, at the age of 50, Nellie is still going strong when she arrives in Tucson. A newspaper reports, Yesterday, Tucson was visited by one of the most extraordinary women in America, Nellie Cashman, whose name and face have been familiar to every important mining camp or district on the coast for more than 20 years. She rode into the town from Casa Grande on horseback, a jaunt that would nearly have prostrated the average man with fatigue. She showed no sign of weariness and went about town in that calm, business-like manner that belongs particularly to her. When news of the great strike in the Klondike reaches the States, Nellie is off for the far north immediately. She arrives in Dai, Alaska during March 1898 and becomes one of the first women to take the steep Chilkoot Pass Trail. At the summit on the Canadian border, the Mounties required each stampeder to pack 2,000 pounds of supplies or they wouldn't let them in. I guess he didn't want American citizens to perish on Canadian soil. Well, 54-year-old Nellie had to make several trips up the snowpack trail, but she was able to pass inspection. And then while waiting for the ice to thaw, she built a raft and then floated 500 miles down the Yukon River to reach Dawson, braving a series of fierce rapids along the way. Nellie soon opens a restaurant and a grocery store, which includes a small library that becomes known as the Prospector's Haven of Rest. A newspaper reports, her entrance into a saloon or dance hall is the signal for every man in the place to stand. Nellie has always done well, 
but she really strikes it rich in the Klondike. Her claim on Bonanza Creek pays her more than $100,000, equivalent to $3 million in today's money. Nellie continues living and prospecting in the Yukon and Alaska for another 25 years. She becomes an expert musher, more than once driving teams of dogs through the snow for hundreds of miles. Here's Marshall. In 1923, at the age of 78, she mushed a dog sled team 350 miles in just 17 days. Newspapers all over Alaska carried the story of that intrepid lady named Nellie Cashman. During the fall of 1924, her fabled health finally begins to fail. She dies at age 79 in January 1925 in St. Joseph's Hospital, which she had helped build nearly 50 years earlier. Nellie was single all her life. She had several proposals. She was a very pretty woman, but she never married. And when asked if she ever feared for her safety, being the only woman among so many rough-hewn men, she replied sweetly, If you act like a lady, men will always treat you like one. Shortly before she dies, a reporter asks her if she ever feared for her virtue while living in all-male mining camps or prospecting on wild frontiers. She replies, Bless your soul, no. I never have had a word said to me out of the way. The boys would sure see to it that anyone who ever offered to insult me could never be able to repeat the offense. And thanks to Roger McGrath for that storytelling, and he's told so many good ones here on this show. Also thanks to Greg Hengler. And Roger is a professor in Southern California, and he's the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. That's Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Nellie Cashman's story, and it's a remarkable one, here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories, and now it's time for an irreverent approach to radio with a brief history of the telephone. Here's Jesse. Hi, this is Jesse with Our American Stories. Please leave your name and number, and I'll get back with you shortly. Unless you're close family or somebody from work, there's a good chance I might screen your call. Even then, who knows? It's nothing personal, and a lot of us do it. 61% of Americans surveyed said that they avoid calls from family or friends. 22% admitted to screening calls from work. There are reasons that some of us don't want to pick up the phone. Texting and email are infinitely more efficient. I could be driving. I could be eating. Maybe I'm working or whatever. If you need to call, 
leave a message, and I'll most likely text you back. Maybe I just don't want your little voice directly in my ear right now. Did you ever think of that? On the other hand, there is something to be said about using the good old-fashioned telephone part of your telephone. 911, what's your emergency? I have knife hands. Excuse me? I looked down and my hands were knives. Your hands are knives? Yeah. Can you put the knives down? No, they're my hands. Like emergency situations when you need to convey a lot of information fast. Like a war zone. But how did we get to this point? where so many of us have not only taken the phone for granted, but will go through such great lengths to avoid one of the greatest inventions of our time. Of course, it all starts with Alexander Graham Bell, the first to patent the design that several others had worked on before 1867. He was also the first to build a fully functional telephone. While building the prototype, Bell knocked over some equipment and called for his assistant, Thomas Watson. Watson, come here. I want you. Mr. Bell, I heard you. I heard every word you said distinctly. You said, Mr. Watson, come here. I want you. Or so I did. Oh, it's a wonderful day for you, Mr. Bell. Everything you've worked for, every dream has come true. It works, Mr. Bell. It works. Yes, I... I dare say you're right, Watson. Our experiments have opened up a... A new age of communications. There'll be a day when, when people will think nothing of conversing through instruments such as we have developed. You mean as an everyday occurrence? Well, that's what I had in mind. The day will come when, when people will think no more of speaking to someone miles away than as if they were in the same room. Think of its possibilities. Yes, Watson, I can foresee the day when homes will be linked to other homes, homes to factories, factories to stores. Cities will be joined to other cities and nations to other nations. But tell me how, Mr. Bell, how can you foretell all these wonders? Well, now really, who would know better than I? Early telephones used a single wire for each line with a ground return to complete the circuit. They also had only one hole to speak into or listen out of at any given moment. However, you could install a second phone and another line to have the luxury of a talking hole for your mouth and a listening hole for your ear at twice the price. Small networks started to form which led to larger ones with centralized switchboards and switchboard operators in the larger cities and towns. By 1904, there are over 3 million phones in the United States. In January of 1915, Thomas Watson in San Francisco received a phone call from Alexander Graham Bell in New York City. Hello. 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 How are you? Oh, it's you. I didn't expect you. you. Quiet! People who lived in small communities out in the backwoods, however, had a hard time getting service at first. To be fair, it was very expensive for a phone company to run 30 miles of cable just for 20 people to have service. One solution to this early problem was the use of party lines. A single phone line could be run miles out of a main city at the fraction of a cost of a large cable. People out in the country could have a phone in their home, but the line itself was communal. Excuse me, I'm using this phone. You 
certainly are. <laughs> this is a party line, you know. Did you hear that, Catherine? This is the first call I've made on this phone, and some boob is complaining. You might pick up your phone only to accidentally eavesdrop on your neighbor's conversation. Excuse me, I'm talking on the phone. Yes, continually. What do you do? Sell magazine subscriptions? Will you please get off the line? The phone would ring, and it might be a call for one of your neighbors. Excuse me, I'm using the phone. I'll be off in a second. You can imagine the kind of fun our kids might have had with this kind of technology. Hello? Eavesdropping on calls became an ongoing concern for the adults. Listen, Buster. Not only that, it caused friction between impatient neighbors who had a hard time waiting their turn. We've been patient long enough. When we're on the phone, you stay off. Now, if you weren't tied to a party line, you picked up the phone, told the operator who you wanted to talk to, and they patched you through. Here's an authentic phone call of a young man phoning a friend in 1951. Operator? 481, please. Thank you. Is Jerry there? Uh, no, he isn't. He's downtown someplace. Oh, okay. You bet. Thank you. Thank you. By the time a good part of the population was becoming familiar with using switchboard operators to connect their calls, the first rotary dial telephones in the Bell system were installed in Virginia in 1919. This all required a lot of education on the part of the telephone companies. The local news of the week. At midnight Saturday, the telephones in this city will be changed to dial service and all telephone numbers will be changed. Late this week, new directories will be delivered. Here are a few important suggestions for the use of your dial telephone. Not only did they need to teach people how to use the phone in the first place, there was a good amount of etiquette that had yet to be established. There are a few easy rules to be followed when dialing because careless dialing mistakes will waste a lot of your time and cause someone else to be inconvenienced and probably irritated. When you want to make a call, always be sure you have the right number. Consult your directory for any number you're not sure of. Write the number down. You'll hear the dial tone. That means that the equipment is ready to handle your calls. Take up your receiver and always listen for the dial tone. Remember how it sounds, a steady hum. Push-button touch-tone phones made their debut in 1963 and picked up speed during the 70s. Though the majority of telephone subscribers still had rotary phones, which in the Bell system of that era, released from telephone companies instead of being owned. In 1967, President LBJ's Commission on Law Enforcement called for the creation of a single number that could be used nationwide for reporting emergencies. The FCC met with AT&T and came up with the 911 system. 911, what's your emergency? I think somebody broke into my house. Speaking of LBJ, Dial this is a recording of a White House phone call from August 9th, 1964. President Johnson is ordering pants. Hello. Hello. Now, the pockets, when you sit down in the chair, the knife and your money comes out, so I needed at least another inch in the pockets. Yeah. Now, another thing, the crotch is always a little too tight. So when you make them up, give me an inch that I can let out there uh, because they cut me. It's just like riding a, a wire fence. These are almost these are the best that I've had anywhere in the United States. But uh, uh, when I gain a little weight, they cut me under there. So leave me 
you never do have much margin there. But see if you can't leave me about an inch from the, where the zipper in, uh, ends, uh, round uh, under my back to my. All right then. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story. By the way, this is the story of free enterprise, folks. There was a time I remember when I would dial the phone and I hated people who had the zero number because it took so long for the dial to come back. And by the way, hearing President John Lyndon Baines Johnson order a change in his pants, precious. Our American Stories, the brief history of the telephone continues after these commercial messages. to our American stories and a brief history of the telephone. Let's return to Jesse and the story. Presidents of the United States have been placing important phone calls since Rutherford B. Hayes had a telephone installed in the White House in 1877. And on July 20th, 1969, President Nixon literally placed an out-of-this-world phone call when he rang up the Apollo 11 astronauts shortly after the first moonwalk. Shortly after the first walk on the moon. Uh, Neil and Buzz, uh, the President of the United States is in his office now and would like to say a few words to you, over. That would be an honor. Uh, go ahead, Mr. President. This is Houston out. Hello, Neil and Buzz. I'm talking to you by telephone from the Oval Room at the White House. And this certainly has to be the most historic telephone call ever made. All the people on this earth are truly one. One in their pride in what you have done. And one in our prayers that you will return safely to earth. Thank you, Mr. President. It's a great honor and privilege for us to be here representing not only the United States, but and of peace of all nations, and with interest and a curiosity, and, and with a vision for the future. Uh, honor for us to be able to participate here today. We're sorry, you have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. And that familiar voice is known as an intercept. If you feel you have reached this recording in error, please check the number and try your call again. A recording you hear when you've hit a dead end. Jane Barbie was known as the Time Lady for the recordings that she made for phone companies as a voice actress. Well, I don't really like to think about speaking to over 20 million people a day, which is what I'm told the statistic is. About half of that is divided between, uh, it's not, rather I should say it's divided about half and half between people calling for time and temperature and weather or, or getting a telephone intercept message like the number you have dialed is temporarily disconnected or is not in service or I'm sorry all circuits are overloaded now would you try your call again later please I know you've gotten a million of those in 1983 the Dynatac 8000X was the first commercially available handheld mobile phone but it had been tested out on the streets of New York City 10 years earlier in 1973 by a guy named Martin Cooper the first public cellular call was made uh, in New York uh, 
I was with Motorola at that time, and I thought a dramatic thing to do was to call my counterpart at AT&T. So I dialed the phone and I said, hi, Joel. Uh, it's Marty Cooper. He said, hi, Marty. I said, I'm calling you from a cell phone. And there was silence at the other end of the line. The uh, idea for the shape of this first phone started out with me approaching Motorola's design group. Uh, I told them that I wanted to have a really dazzling design. And two weeks later, they had a flip phone, they had a slider phone, but we selected this phone because it was simple. Simple and expensive at $4,000. That's 10 grand in today's money. It weighed two pounds, 13 inches tall, stored 30 numbers, and took 10 hours to recharge. This thing was a brick, but it was just the beginning. Available since the 50s, answering machines cost upward of $200 to purchase. It wasn't until 1984 that answering machines became affordable and sales reached a million units per year in the United States. Soon, in what would become one of the darker chapters in American history, the rise of novelty answering machine greeting messages plagued the earth for years. Well, Gracie, what do you think of the new answering machine? Oh, George, it's wonderful, but it doesn't work. It uh, doesn't work. I've talked for hours to that thing, but it never once answered me back. Well, I think it's a very rude machine, George. You've got a point. Uh, say goodnight, Gracie. Goodnight, Gracie. And you, leave your message when you hear the beep. I give you the Radio Shack Telephone Answering Machine Outgoing Messages Comedy Edition with celebrity impersonators. Wouldn't you just know it? It's always something. You call a person and you get a machine. I mean, it's absolutely disgusting. A machine that'll record your voice. What's next? I'll tell you what's next. The beat. And of course, there was always a musical option for your answering machine outgoing message. I'd step up for a moment, but I'll call you right back if you let me know who you are. I am putting this on my phone today. Time that you call and where I can reach you when I get home. Now, from the 90s on, cell phones became smaller and smarter. In 1993, perhaps the world's first smartphone, IBM Simon, was a mobile phone, pager, fax machine, and PDA all rolled into one. 1996 brings the flip phone. 2002, out comes the Blackberry. 04, the Motorola Razor. And on January 9th, 2007, Steve Jobs announced the first iPhone, describing it in three main components. A widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communications device. An iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. An iPod, a phone, are you getting it? These are not three separate devices. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. Today, today Apple is going to reinvent the phone. And now, here we are. Smartphones follow us everywhere. With a combination of social media and gaming, everywhere you turn, there are people staring into their phones like zombies. We can't get enough of our phones, yet we're spending less time actually talking to each other. 
I'm guilty of it, and we all know that our kids are hooked. Dr. Gene Twangy is the author of iGen, Super Connected Kids Are Less Happy. Why? There's just more and more evidence pointing in the direction of mental health issues and serious mental health issues just being more common just in the last five years. So the suicide rate for teens has increased by 50% for older teens and has tripled for girls um, who are 12 to 14. Clinical level depression has increased by 50%. More report symptoms of depression, anxiety, self-harming behavior. So these, these more serious problems are just more common than they used to be um, just not that long ago. The trends really started around 2011 or 2012. So that timing with these issues starting to show up around 2012 um, was suspicious because the economy was getting better at that point. Um, but that happens to be the year when smartphones became really common. And I found out later, uh, the Pew Center concluded that late 2012 is when the percentage of Americans who owned a smartphone crossed 50%. And it was probably a little earlier for teens, maybe around 2011. So right around the time smartphones became ubiquitous, these mental health problems started to go up and, and then went from there. But it doesn't have to all be doom and gloom. Remember those old phone etiquette training videos put out by the phone companies back in the day? They're fun to listen to. Simon Sinek is a motivational speaker who, among other things, tackles the topic of smartphone disrespect. Okay, there is a subconscious reaction to these devices when we use them. Okay? What if I were to hold my phone while I'm talking to you? I'm not checking it. It's not buzzing. It's not beeping. I'm not even, I'm nothing. I'm just holding it. Do you feel at this moment that you are the most important thing to me right now? No, you do not, because there is a subconscious reaction we have to the device. When it is out, it makes the people around us feel that they are less important. When we show up to a meeting or a lunch or a dinner with our colleagues, our clients, or our friends, or our families, and we put the phone on the table, we have announced to everyone in the room that they are not that important to us. And by the way, putting the phone upside down is not more polite. My favorite one is when the meeting or at a lunch with someone that the phone will ring and the caller ID will pop up and they will go, I'm not going to get it. Oh, so magnanimous. Oh, I'm lucky to eat with you today. Or they could just put the damn thing away. You can tell how addicted we are. When somebody pulls out their phone when you're with them, how uncomfortable does that make us feel? You're walking down the street with someone, they pull their phone out. We feel stupid, so what do we do? We pull our phones out. We're so addicted, somebody goes to the bathroom when we're at dinner, and what do we have to sit there by ourselves? God forbid we should look around the room for five minutes. We pull our phones out. Meetings, awful. What do we do when a meeting happens, right? Everybody's sitting, waiting for the meeting to start. Bob's running a few minutes late. Bob's here? Okay, start the meeting. Do you know when relationships are built? All that in-between time. We're only now starting to see the effects that screen time has on our lives, our relationships, our careers. But one thing is for certain, putting down the phone couldn't hurt anything. So if I screen your call, don't take it personal. I'm away from my phone, and I'll return your call with a text shortly. After all, I might be playing with my kids, or just scrolling through Facebook. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. 
sorry. You have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. If you feel you have reached this recording in error, please check the number and try your call again. And great job as always, Jesse. And what a story. A brief history of the telephone. We'd love your story ideas. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we love telling your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we ripped this next story straight out of the headlines of the Wall Street Journal, and it was one of the most popular stories for almost a month running. And... We decided to track it down, and today we have on Julie Lawson, the daughter of Sonny and Bryna Hurwitz. They raised their daughters Julie and Freda in Boston. In 2016, after Sonny and Bryna had both died, Julie took a DNA test and later got her sister Freda to do the same, revealing some shocking truths. Julie, let's start off in the beginning. What made you want to take this DNA test, and what happened? Well, just simple curiosity. I had been working on my family tree through Ancestry.com for quite a while, several years, and my mom was still alive, so she could help me quite a bit with her side of the family. It just always interested me. I never felt rooted. I never knew my and felt connected family-wise. And I was just curious, and I like to research, and, you know, on those websites, one thing leads to another. So I decided to do my DNA. Nothing came up that surprised me on my DNA, right? So there was there was no shocker, but there were a couple of names that didn't mean anything to me. And when my DNA matched one of those names, that person reached out to me through Ancestry. His name is Larry, and he's a psychologist and lives in Long Island, and it turns out he's my second cousin. We share the same great-grandfather, but we didn't know any of this. But he was curious, and he also had a deep love of family history and ancestry and had been working on his tree for years, and he noticed my name show up on his list, and he wanted to know if I knew anything, and I knew nothing. And he would say, well, your mom's still alive. Why don't you get her to do the DNA? I said, well, yeah, maybe I'll send her a kit. And he said, your sister, too, because that'll really help. And I'm like, well, my, my sister lives in England. She's a very busy woman. It won't be her priority, but I'll keep bugging her to do it. So Larry and I stayed in touch intermittently, and he'd check in. I couldn't, we couldn't figure it out. We let it go. He never really let it go. So then, two years later, my mom has died, and she wouldn't do the DNA kit, which I never knew why she didn't want to do it. And then my sister, out of the blue, who's been living in England for 30 years, gets a two-year contract in the United States and decides to move to Falls Church, Virginia, a place neither of us have ever been. She has no business even being in the United States, and she asks if I can come help her get settled and with child care. So I was on a plane, 
And while I was there, it dawned on me, she still hasn't done the DNA kit. I'm going to get her one. I'm going to make her spit. I'm going to get the kit. She's going to spit, and we'll go from there. So I did. So it was her test that came back with the shocker, because that is when the, the closest relationship that popped up to her was a man's name that we did not know. And it came up as a really close match. And we looked his name up on Facebook. And there we were staring at a man about 62 years old who looked just like our dad when dad was that age. But dad's been gone 11 years. And this stranger is looking at us. I'm like, oh, my God, that's dad. So we realized dad had an affair. We've got a brother. I have brother. And I know that a lot of people don't see their Facebook private messages, and that's always frustrating. It could sit there forever. But within 20 minutes, he answered. And all I had said was, hmm, looks like we have a DNA match. would love to talk to you about it. Because we didn't know what he knew. We didn't want to be the ones to shock him, a stranger saying, you look just like our dad. So we were very delicate about it. And... um I said, well, you know, I'm in Falls Church, Virginia. I live in Phoenix, but I'm visiting my sister and helping her get settled here. I have no idea where you are, but we'd love to talk. And he writes back and he says, you're in Falls Church, Virginia. I'm 45 minutes from you. The next day is Mother's Day. And I say to him, well, this is amazing. You're 45 minutes from us, and I know Mother's Day is tomorrow, but we're not doing anything. And is there any chance you would come over? And he said, let me talk to my fiancé, and got back to me. And he said, yeah, we can be there at noon. Well, my sister had gone to bed. She didn't even know how far I had taken this. So when she wakes up in the morning, I said, we're going to be meeting our half-brother today. He's going to be here about noon with his fiancé. We started gathering pictures of Dad because we know that we're his sisters, but he doesn't know he's coming to meet his sisters. He doesn't know we know his dad, that we grew up with his dad. So Freda had not yet unpacked everything from England. We spent quite a time scurrying around, going through boxes to try and find photos of dad at different ages. And we did, and we had this stack, and we had it upside down on the dining room table, and the doorbell rang, and we, I opened the door, and it was, I was looking at my dead father. I mean, it was so weird. I mean, it was just, I, I don't know what else to say other than he didn't just resemble Dad. It was like Dad was standing right there. It, it was I almost, I think I almost fainted. And, of course, I got emotional, and I had already warned him that I was the emotional one and Freda was the practical one. So he came in. He sat down at the dining room table. We made small talk. And so I, at some point I said to him, Dana, why do you think, what do you think our connection is? What do you think about this whole DNA thing? And he said, well, obviously, we're cousins some kind of way. I'm like, he thinks we're cousins. And I finally said to him, I just leaned into him, and I said, Dana, we are 99.9% sure we are not cousins. We think you're our brother. And I turned over the stack of pictures of Dad, and now he's looking at these photos of this man who he looks just like. He just went silent, actually. He didn't know what to say. And 
I mean, I told him I already loved him. I said, I don't know what kind of person you're going to turn out to be, but we love Dad, and we love you, and you look just like Dad, and this is so amazing, and oh, wow, we were so excited. We knew who his dad was, and his mom died kind of young, and each time he had asked her through his youth, she would change the subject, and at one point he finally stopped asking. And when we come back, we're going to continue with Julie Lawson's story. My goodness, the scary side of DNA tests. But in the end, a truth revealed, a secret unveiled. Julie Lawson's story continues here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories into our conversation with Julie Lawson. She and her sister had taken DNA tests and found out that they had a half-brother. So you find out in the end that there was a secret about an infidelity of your father's. And so let's talk about how that secret affected you and your sister. Well, when we first, the first secret of finding our brother was very exciting to find him and and welcome him, and that he lived 45 minutes away was amazing, and my sister has a 12-year-old son, and so now her son has an uncle, and, you know, they haven't lived in the United States, and and so this was great. So we were just happy-go-lucky. We have this new brother and his fiance, and it was really exciting. Let's talk about the, this gentleman. How did this secret affect him? He had to be relieved, in a sense. He finally knew who his dad was. <laughs> At first, he did kind of, I mean, he was in shock, of course, because we knew longer than he did. We had several hours to be thinking about it all. Um, he's a very laid-back, kind of cool, quiet guy, like Dad, actually. And, um, at, you know, he was speechless, and yet he seemed delighted that he had siblings, that he's finding out this truth. He, hadn't, he had not been on a quest at all to find out anything. He had sort of, like, given up on it. So um, he said, and he grew up an only child. So he seemed really excited about all of it. I mean, it was weird, and it was, you know, I don't don't know the adjectives to describe the whole thing because there's so, it's like an avalanche of emotions. So that night, you had this puzzlement you had to deal with. So what happened was, because I used to look at my matches pretty regularly to see if anybody new popped up um, in a close uh, related match, like a first, second cousin or something. I wasn't interested in sixth to eighth cousins, but I would check it. So I was kind of familiar with the same names showing up. You know, they do it in order of closeness. So I kind of knew the names. And when he came up on my sister's uh, DNA, 
I don't know, some time went by, and I thought, you know, that name isn't familiar. Here's this guy. He looks like Dad. I don't remember it showing up on my list. So I looked at my list, and he wasn't on it. And I thought, well, maybe because he's a half-sibling. Again, my ignorance, I don't know how DNA worked. I thought maybe we didn't share enough DNA for him to show up on my list, but he could show up on my sister's list. But that was my naivete and ignorance. And and, um, the cousin that had been in touch with me from my first DNA results, who was asking me all the time, how do you think we're connected? Will your mother do the test? Will your sister do the test? This was Larry. And so I called him like two days into this, and I said, well, something has come up. And I told him, now he's a psychologist, so I told him that this guy isn't on my list, but he's on my sister's list, and he looks just like our dad. And Larry got it right away. He was really good over the years at looking at the puzzle pieces of his stuff, and he just, it dawned on him, well, if he's not on my list, then they have to have different fathers. Her sister and she are not full sisters because this guy is related to her sister and not her. So the two sisters can't be full sisters. He, he was the, the puzzle fixer. He brought all the pieces to the table and he wasn't going to tell me at first because he knew it was going to change my life. And he said, have you looked at the centimorgans between Dana and your sister? And I said, no, I don't know. What, what's a centimorgan? It sounds like an insect with a hundred legs or something. And <laughs> and he said, no, it's a way of quantifying DNA. A certain range of centimorgans means you're a half-sibling. A certain is a full-sibling or parent-child relationship. So um, I looked at the centimorgans between him and my sister, and they fell into the correct range of half-siblings. At some point, Larry said, did you look at the centimorgans between you and your sister? And I thought, my first reaction was, well, why would I do that? I don't even care about my son of organs between me and my sister. And then I realized in a split second he was telling me something. I'm like, what is he meaning? And I looked at the centimorgans, and we had the same amount of centimorgans as she had with her other half-sibling. So I was a half-sibling. And that was a shocking moment. We didn't cry because, oh, now we're only half-siblings, and it wasn't like that. If she had had no DNA, she'd always be my full sister. We cried, I think, the shock of it all. In that split second, we were learning that we didn't have the same father, and that my dad wasn't my dad. I mean, he was my dad, but he wasn't my father. And that... You know, it still feels fresh, obviously. I didn't even know I still had this emotion in me. But that split second is when we were freaking out. Like, what does this all mean? There's more to this. And if he's if my new brother is now not my brother because we share a different dad, and my dad isn't my father, who's my father? Oh, my God. It went from this incredible joy and delight it was like having dad around. Yeah, and to suddenly not. You, you now have got to be curious again. It's almost like what, what really happened here? Who's my, in your, at this late stage in your life, you're asking yourself, who's my daddy? And who did that turn out to be, Julie? Oh, how, was, how, did this, how did this come to be that you made this discovery? This was 
Mr. Larry helping me with all these puzzle pieces. Man, my little cogs were so busy turning. I was angry. I was so hurt. I had a night of being in a fetal position, wailing like a baby to my mother. I mean, why? What What did you do? What is this about? And And now it was starting to make sense that all of this was explaining why she treated me the way she did. It was so intensely primal. A primal therapist would have had a ball with me. It was unbelievable. You talk about cathartic and so painful and so shocking. It's like your whole life. And people, I've heard people say, well, nothing really changed. Your dad's always going to be your dad. Your sister's always going to be your sister. And I want to strangle those people. I'm trying to be cool about it. They just don't get it. Of course, the content of my relationships don't change, but the context does. And that's shocking. It's just so much shock to the system of feeling so ungrounded and also getting an explanation at the same time for your torturous youth. You and your mom had a tough relationship, and now now you're understanding why. Your mom had a secret, too. That And by the way, she had to bear that secret, and that was no duck walk either for her. I'm sure it wasn't. I know, so I went through that range of emotions, trying to put myself in the shoes of this young woman and what she was going through. I mean, so you want to have compassion for everybody in their story. I mean, we're all so damaged to some extent, and some of us get to process it and go on and do great, and some don't process it at all, and she was one that never processed any of it. She was a very immature woman throughout her life, and she had a lot of wonderful qualities and very loved by a lot of people. And she was a young girl, and she was in love with this boy that she was dating. And he wasn't in love with her. She was just a nice girl. And they were all friends in a small circle that double-dated. And she wanted him to marry her. Her best friends were 17 and 18, and they were all engaged. She wanted to be engaged. She wanted to get out of her parents' house. She hated her stepmother. Um, and she fell in love with this boy, and he wasn't into her like that. And so they stopped dating. He told her, you know, if you want to get married, you really better find somebody else because I'm going to have a life of adventures. I've got things I want to do. And she went on and married my dad. And when we come back, we're going to continue this remarkable story with Julie Lawson. Again, this was ripped off the headlines of the Wall Street Journal and was one of the most popular stories of the year. And when we continue, more with Julie Lawson. A DNA test turns her life and her sister's upside down. This is Our American Stories.
And we return to Our American Stories. Julie Lawson has been telling us her family's story. One day, she and her sister took a DNA test. Her sister showed as having a half-brother, but Julie, through the help of her cousin Larry, soon realized that she and her sister were half-sisters as well. So now she's left wondering, who's my daddy? Julie's mother fell in love in high school, but her boyfriend at the time was just not interested. So her mother married another man she didn't love. Julie, tell us what happened next. About a year and a half into the marriage, she'd already had her first child, my brother, she called her ex-boyfriend up. She heard he was, um, I don't know, she, she called him up because she wanted to go for a cup of coffee, supposedly. They got together, and um, they were commiserating. She was telling him that she wasn't happy in her marriage. It wasn't what she thought it would be or should be. And they had a one-night thing, and he told her afterwards that he felt really guilty and that she, we, they shouldn't do this anymore. And he said, look, you know, you're married, you have a child, and this has got to stop. You've got to go take care of your marriage. And so they never talked again. And I guess a few months later, she called him to say she was pregnant. And she didn't exactly say she knew it was his or thought it was his. Supposedly, she was just saying she was pregnant, and he, being 23 years old and tired of being kind of chased, um, he said to her, he said, you know what, he, he thought she was trying to trap him, and he told her, you've got to take care of your marriage, and don't call me anymore. Well, at 23 years old, he had his own mind didn't want to exactly. even think about that. Larry, in New York, the psychologist, who's my second cousin, has been trying to put these pieces together, and he, when he realizes, and of course I get past the, him telling me that I obviously have a different father, he went back and looked at our mutual matches on the DNA list, and he knows a lot of the family members, even though there's two sides of the family that haven't talked in decades. He's helping me with these pieces, and he's looking at the names of the matches, and he's clever enough to also go on Facebook and look at these people's pages. So he's looking at these names, and he says, look, there's this name. It's initials only, but I think you need to reach out to them. And then there's another name, which I know, which is a Greenberg, and you should try and reach this man, Les Greenberg, because a cousin of Les's is coming up as your second cousin, which means their parent is a first cousin, and if their parent is a first cousin, one of those uncles, uh, uh, brothers, is got to be your father. And I'm like, oh my God, I couldn't believe that he'd figured all this out. So I'm looking for this man, Les Greenberg, looking at his page. Two things I see. I see a name that's familiar from my childhood, a person that's about my age that I grew up with in Boston, is somehow connected to his page, and I'm thinking it's got to be her. But the other odd thing says is you have a mutual friend named Arthur Katz. Arthur Katz comes up as a mutual friend to me and this Greenberg, and I don't know any Greenbergs. I, say, I write to Arthur. I said, do you know this guy and how to reach him? And he says, yeah, hold on a minute. I'll get you his email. I'm like, oh, my God, this is so easy. And so he gives me Les's email, 
And I emailed him, and I said, we have a DNA connection, and I'd like to explore it further, and I have some questions, and would you be open to talking about it? And he said, sure. So we went back and forth with emails, and um, so I have to stop there for one moment just to say, when I was a kid, maybe 12 or 13, I asked my mother to share her love story with me about her and my dad. How did you meet? What did you have in common? How did you know he was the one? How did you know you wanted to spend the rest of your life with him? What kind of things did you do on dates? And she started the story. Well, she said, first I have to tell you that your dad wasn't my first love, which to a kid, it's kind of shocking. You just kind of think it is. I don't know. At least I did. And so I'm like, yeah, okay. And she said, my first love was high. And then she went on with the story about my dad. And so now I'm in touch with Les Greenberg, and he sends me an email, and I said to him, tell me who your uncles are. So Les writes me this list of his four uncles, and at the very bottom, and each one has a nickname in parentheses, and at the very bottom it says Ira, and in parentheses it says, hi. So I knew that was my mother's childhood love, puppy love, who she said. Her love story started with high. The odds of that email having nicknames and parentheses was just uh, remarkable. And I'm saying, of these four brothers, who's alive? Anybody alive? And he says, well, out of the four brothers, my uncle high is alive. I said, oh, my God. Now I can hardly breathe. My father is alive. And he's 89. And he's in Florida, and for the first time in a long time, I'm on the East Coast with my sister in Virginia. And Les, I don't tell Les yet that I know that High's got to be my father. I tell him I want to, could I speak with High? And he says, yeah, and here's his number. And um, I called. I started out with, you know, my name. I didn't use my last name. And I said I was doing a DNA family tree search, and it looked like, you know, we had some things in common, and would he mind answering some questions? And he was like, no, go ahead, ask me anything you want. I'm like, great, so did you know a Bryna? Now, it's the most unusual name, actually, so if you ever knew one, you wouldn't forget that you knew one. And he right away said, Bryna? Sure, I knew Bryna. I thought, oh, God, now my heart's really pounding. And I said, "Um, did you know her as a friend within a circle of friends? Uh, Or did you date her? And he said, no, we dated. I'm like, oh, God, here we go. I said, hi, I have a really personal question to ask you. And it's really uncomfortable asking it, but it would really help me greatly. And he said, go ahead, ask me anything you want. I said, did you have sex with her? Did we have sex? Yeah, we had sex. And that's when I really felt like I knew for sure. And this is what I said to him. I said, hi, are you sitting down? And he says, I'm 89. I'm almost always sitting down. And I said, do you have any heart conditions? And he said, heart conditions? No, I had a stint about 10 years ago, but I'm good. I said, great. I said, Brian is my mother. 
and I'm 99.9% sure you're my father. And there was a moment of silence, and he said, Julie, you're blowing my mind. And I thought, oh, my God, I haven't heard that expression since the 60s. And he sounds like quite a character, and I know he's totally shocked. And, and he was very, stand, became standoffish. And he said, I, I don't know what, what made you think that this is true. You don't have my DNA to test. And how did you get my number? So I mentioned all the names, his nephews, his nieces. These are my first cousins that I never knew. And they're his nieces and nephews. I realize he's pretty upset. So I try like reroute the direction the conversation was going. And I start to ask him about his life. And we were on the phone for over an hour. But I think towards the beginning, actually, I said, he says to me, well, I don't know what you want from me. What do you want from me? And I started to cry. And I just said, I want you to tell me to come to Florida. I want to meet you. And when we come back, this remarkable story continues. There's going to be a trip to Florida. And Julie will be meeting her dad. More of Julie Lawson's story here on Our American Stories. Return to Our American Stories in the last part of this amazing story. Julie Lawson has been telling us how she found out her dad was not really her dad, and she then got in contact with her real biological father, who lives in Florida. She told him, quote, I want you to tell me to come to Florida. I want to meet you. Julie, what did he say next? He says, come to Florida. Come to Florida? I don't know. Well, if you want to come, come. I said, no, I'm not going to come with that tone of voice. So I, I redirected the conversation, and he spent an hour telling me about his life and the order of things. And um, he was quite a character. He's funny, and he's got a great, sharp mind. And, I, I mean, actually quite amazing. And... um Towards the end of the conversation, he said, well, I don't know what else to say. And I said again, just tell me to come to Florida. And I think because maybe I inserted a little Yiddish in the conversation, and I was, I'm was i a really good listener, and I was so taken by his story, and I had so many questions. I think I softened him a little bit because his tone of voice changed this time. And he said, you want to come to Florida, come. And that was it. I said, I'm going to try and be there within a couple of weeks. And do you know that the week that I was able to get a flight turned out to be the weekend of Father's Day. So this started on Mother's Day, and I met my father and shared his first Father's Day. He never married. He never had children. He didn't know I existed. And at 89, he had a daughter and his first Father's Day. Well, I went to Florida and a couple of days right before Father's Day, his nephew, Les, who had sent me that email, lives an hour away and had arranged to meet me. Les met me at the um, 
independent living home where I was living. I opened the door and he reached out his arms to me. He said, welcome home, darling. I tried to keep it together. I mean, there I am with a total stranger. It was very mixed emotions. I almost felt an instant love for him. We had a month of conversations before we met. And we would talk a long, long time. And so I did feel this love, and yet it was weird because he's still a total stranger. My mission in sharing my story is I want to find a way to encourage parents to tell their children the truth. Some people say it's not that black and white an issue, but for me it is, even taking into consideration children who are born from rape, from incest, from whatever unusual ways it could be. I mean, I I understand, but I think all children at some age, when it's age-appropriate and in a safe emotional environment with a professional, I think we all deserve to know who our biological parents are. It doesn't mean we'll choose to have a relationship with them. And I, I believe all men have a right to know they have offspring on this planet. I want to encourage people to tell the truth. I know they're afraid. They're afraid of consequences. They're afraid of rocking other boats. They're afraid of being judged. But we can't live our life in fear of what other people think. What they think is none of our business. We need to we need to tell the truth of our lives so that other people get to live the truth of their lives. This is, I think, so the deepest part of the story. And I think what I think people also are afraid to do is, in the end, tell the truth to themselves. For my mother, every minute, I was a reminder of her indiscretion, the lie she was living. The, the pain that she had to live with her whole oh, life? Oh, yeah. And the longer the longer she lived the lie, the harder it was to come forward because when my dad died 11 years ago, she could have told me if she was trying to protect him, she could have told me. And then I was with her the last 10 days of her life, and she was lucid, and she could have told me. She had many opportunities to break free from this self-imposed judgment and shame. You know, she had many years to process it. And she chose not to. And in some ways, it's because she was just incredibly emotionally damaged herself and didn't know how to really do it. But on the other hand, at some point when you're an adult, I think it is your responsibility to look at your crap and process it and try and come out the other side of it. And um, she just wasn't evolved enough to do anything about her damage. And so instead, she damaged me severely. I grew up thinking I was mentally retarded. Back then, it was labeled emotionally disturbed. I was taken to shrinks when I was very young. She She just didn't know how to look at me and be loving. I know she loved me, but she couldn't treat me lovingly at all, ever. I've been disowned. I've been put on the street. I ran away from home at 15 with nothing on my back but the clothes I was wearing. Uh, in the middle of a blizzard. I mean, I had to do something to save a piece of my soul because I kept thinking, I bet I'd be a different person if it weren't for all this stress every day and all her nonsense. I I could find out who I am. I could just be me instead of going to school and zoning out. I can't focus because I'm worrying about what happened last night and what's going to happen when I get home and I'm feeling so small and I have no self-esteem and I'm a loner and I'm now growing up being abused by my older brother 
who I adored, and then he went from being my hero to an abuser. Um, I left home at 15 and went to the streets of New York City. I had a really rough life. I never knew what a parent's love felt like. And I am in love with my birth father. We have so much in common. It's uncanny what we have in common. And we adore one another. And we we could just, we talk for hours. Sometimes we talk every day, every other day. Um, I just came back from his 90th birthday party. I got to be with my father on his 90th for his birthday party. He chose four songs to express his feelings through music because he said he didn't want to bore everybody, that he'd say a little something between songs. And one of the songs he chose for us was Ella Fitzgerald singing, How Deep is the Ocean? That's how deep his love is for me. And two nights ago, when we were talking, he said, Oh, Julie, having you in my life, he said, You know, I was lucky. I was the baby of the family. I was loved by everybody. I had family, but it's so different having a daughter. This kind of love, I mean, you're mine. I have a daughter. I'm 89. This was when he was 89. He first said it. He was crying. I said, why are you crying? He says, I've missed 65 years of knowing my daughter. I had a daughter walking the earth that I didn't get to know. And you know what, Lee? He grew, he, I grew up around the corner from where he was. I could have known him the first 25 years of my life. All the love I missed out on, all the things I could have, he, I would have had a soft place to land had I not been the secret. What you still have is such a remarkable gift. And this man, this man had chosen to never, never marry and he had chosen to never have kids. And my goodness, what a gift for him. That's what a what gift for said. him. He just told me the other night, he said, you've changed my life. He said, I feel so different. I have a daughter. And I said, I know. I said, and you could have been a jerk, and I wouldn't have liked you, or I could have been a jerk, and you wouldn't have liked me, but look at us. And uh, by the way, it, it was clear that you guys, you, you both shared the most important of all things, which is a common sense of humor. He cracks me up. He's a great joke teller. I could never remember jokes. Oh, does he have a slew, and they're pretty good, and he's got a good delivery. To me the other day, he says, you know, Julie, I've been thinking. I said, what you been thinking about? He said, I've been thinking about what I want on my headstone. I said, your headstone? He says, well, you know, I'm 90 years old. You think about these things. I said, yeah, that makes sense. I said, so what do you want? Did you come up with something? He says, yeah. I wanted to say, stop by any time. I'm always in. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. He's adorable. Oh, well, lucky you is all I can tell yeah, you. And lucky I am him. So lucky. lucky him. That's what he says all the time, <laughs> how lucky he is that he has a daughter like me. He said to me, he said, if I had met a woman like you, I'd have married. Wow. How about that? How about Neither that? of my parents ever expressed any joy about my presence in their life. Amazing. So this is an amazingly cathartic experience for me. I get to be 65 years old and feel this kind of love. And you've been listening to Julie Lawson, and what a story she has to tell. It's a movie, folks. I mean, my goodness, what a movie it would be. And I am sure that as all of this DNA testing happens around this world and around this country, my goodness, these are stories that I would bet are popping up all over the country. And by the way, I think Julie's right. Every parent should tell the truth. 
to their kids when they're ready. And all children at some time do deserve to know who their biological parents are. And I even love the way she said that men, they too deserve to know. And my goodness, when she started to talk about her parents, her life, and how she felt so small, she felt so alone, she felt abused, she left home at 15, she did have a really, really rough life. And my goodness, we know why. When she said those words, neither of my parents ever expressed any kind of joy about having me in their life. Uh, Just like a kick in my gut. And we know why now. The mother had an illegitimate child, and the father knew it. And the father also knew that the mother didn't love him. And she knew it. What a disaster. And what a story, and what courage for telling it. Julie Lawson's story. My goodness, more people like her. I'm sure are out there than we know. Julie Lawson's story, her sister's story, and of course, High's story. And in the end, a beautiful love story here on Our American Stories.